morning. All right, kids, where are you guys all at this morning? Raise your hands up. Really high. All right. Uh, so my question for you this morning is how many of you have ever gotten good news about something? What do you think, Levi? About Jesus. That's the right answer. <laughs> what about something else? Something not quite that good. What do you think, Dinah? That you and Sophie are going to get your own room. It's a pretty big deal at our house. What about you, Eleanor? About Jesus. No, that it's lunchtime. That's that's good news. Drew, you're gonna go get ice cream. All right. Now, what if we took each of those things? So, Diane and Sophie get in their own room, uh, lunchtime, getting ice cream, and made a better news version of those things. What would be better than getting your own room, Dinah? Maybe like getting your own house? <laughs> What's better than just lunch? Dinner. Dinner? <laughs> I mean, I was going to go with brunch, but... What's better than getting ice cream, Drew? Large ice cream? Even more ice cream, right? Maybe like getting a whole ice cream shop. The reason why we're talking about this is because in our passage today, the people in Isaiah, they get good news from God. And, and it, Isaiah even uses a word that we know as gospel, which means good news. The people get that kind of good news. But what we're going to talk about and what we're going to see is that the news that we get about Jesus is way better than that news. And so when Levi and Eleanor said that, you know, good news is the good news about Jesus, they're absolutely right. That's, that's the best kind of good news. There is no better news than that. And that's the kind of news that we get. And it's better than the good news that they get in their past, in our passage today. And so kids, I'd encourage you to go home and ask your parents about the good news that God's people get in Isaiah. Ask them about the good news that we get in Jesus and ask them why that good news is better. Ask them to tell you more about who Jesus is and what he's done and why that's the best news we could ever get. Uh, so let's, let's read our passage and we'll get into it this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapters uh, 51 and 52 this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 9 of chapter 51 and read through verse 12 of chapter 52. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 51. We're going to start reading in verse 9 and read down through uh, verse 12 of chapter 52. The verses are also being on the slides behind me. He says, Awake! Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? 
And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking." I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, You are my people. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are a God who brings good news. That in spite of the rebellion of your people and in spite of the fact that they rejected you, you bring them a message of comfort. That you promise to redeem them from their circumstances, to to buy them out of their captivity and to bring them back into uh, your land and your presence. God, we pray today that as we, we look at this passage in Isaiah, that we would see not just the good news that you have for them, but also the better news that you have for us in Jesus. We pray that we would learn more about just how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you are our God who reigns and that the whole earth will know about your salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this passage that we just read is is kind of like, like a hinge in the book of Isaiah that, that moves us from one section into the next section. And it does that by, by summing up this message of comfort that God has been giving to his people kind of again and again and again ever since chapter 40. And it's going to move us in to the next section, which we're going to start next week. Uh, and so we'll find out more about that then. But it's more about this servant of the Lord and what specifically he's going to do in order to deal with, with our problem and their problem with sin. How is he going to bring about this forgiveness that God has been promising to his people ever since chapter 40? And so today's passage just kind of like moves us from just general comfort into and to prepare us for this passage about the servant that's coming next week. And so what's going on today is there's these, these four sections where God's people kind of call out to him. They, they call out to him to, to wake up. Uh, and then God is going to kind of turn the tables on them through the next three sections and tell them that it's actually them that need to take action, that he's already taken action on their behalf. And in doing this, God is going to tell them more about this good news message of comfort that uh, he's bringing to them. So the first section is verses uh, 9 down through 11. And so the people are speaking out to God. They say, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So they're, they're calling God to take action on their behalf. And they bring up, they say they, they want him to take action like he did in, in generations past. And they bring up these things that God did in the past on behalf of his people. And so they're saying, we want you to do something like that again. And God has been telling them since chapter 40 that he's going to do just that. He's going to do this great act of redemption that's going to be even better than the Exodus. But they ask him to do that. They say, uh, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is a reference to Egypt. And so they're talking about what God did in Egypt. Back in Isaiah 30, he calls Egypt Rahab. And so that's what he's, he's talking about there. They say, you're the one who here pierced the dragon. The dragon is a reference to Pharaoh. In Ezekiel 29.3, Ezekiel calls Pharaoh the dragon. And so he's talking about what God did when he brought his people out of Egypt. And he makes it clear in the next section. He says, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And so they're talking about God bringing his people out of Egypt and through the Exodus and the Passover. This, this great act of redemption that everyone in the Old Testament points to is like, that's the thing God did to make us his people. That's the thing God did when he became our God in 
in our Redeemer. And so they're saying they want, they want God to do something like that again. And then in verse 11, they say this. They say, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, This is almost, and in some places it is, a direct quote of something that God told them earlier in this section that he was going to do. He's going to bring them back from Egypt. Uh, He's going to deal with their sadness, and there's going to be joy and gladness for them. And so what they're doing here is they're they're laying hold of God's promises and saying to him, do what you said you're going to do. And that's a really good thing, right? This This is not name it and claim it. Right? This is not them saying, like, if we just have enough faith and we, we say the right words, then, you know, God will give us a, a new job and a new house and a new car and lots of money and we can just reach out and, and grab onto these things and, and claim the promises of God and then God will give us everything we want. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're laying hold of the thing that God said, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to give you this thing. This is my promise to you. I'm going to bring you back from uh from Babylon, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm going to restore you in relationship with me. And so God's people are putting their faith in his promises. And they're saying, God, do what you promised you would do. And that is a great, great uh, move of faith for them as his people. And he responds in verse 12. In the section from 12 to 16, he says, I am he who comforts you. And he talks about how they're, they're afraid. He tells them uh, not to fear, not to uh, get so focused on their oppressors. Uh, they're, they're, they've forgotten the Lord, their maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. They, they fear continually all day because of the wrath of their oppressor. And so God recognizes their circumstances. Their circumstances are bad. They're being oppressed. They're being mistreated. They're, they're being uh, held captive by Babylon. And so their situation is a bad situation. God acknowledges that, but he says, don't fear them, fear me. Because he says he's going to deal with their oppressor. He says, where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down, that's God's people, shall be speedily released. He shall not go down, he shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. So God is saying to them, I'm going to deal with your circumstances. You're going to come out, you're going to be freed, you're not going to die, and you're going to have enough bread. And that last one kind of seems anticlimactic, right? You're going to be set free. You're not going to die. And you'll have some bread. Should be the other way around, right? God, come on. Put the best thing last. You'll have bread. You'll be free. You won't die. But I think that what he's doing here is he's telling them that he's going to provide for them in the big, huge things. He's going to bring them out of captivity. They're not going to die. They're not going to go down to the pit. And even after that, he's still going to be their God. He's going to provide for them in the the huge things, bringing them back from Babylon. And he's going to provide for them in the little mundane things of giving them what they need day to day to survive. that's, That's really the best one. He's going to be with them always. And he tells them, why they can trust and not fear. Because, verse 15, he is the Lord their God. He stirs up the sea. The Lord of hosts is his name. He's put his words in their mouth. He's covered them in the shadow of his hands. He's established the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. He says to them, you are my people. They can trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do because he's the Lord, right? The Babylons are a menial task for him. They're nothing, 
He can deal with them. He can bring them out of their captivity. He can preserve their lives. He can give them all the bread they need because he owns everything. And he reminds them at the end that they are still his people. That is probably the most comforting part of all of this. Despite everything that's happened to them, despite the fact that they've rejected him and rebelled against them, despite the fact that he's sent Assyria and Babylon to pour out judgment on them and destroy their homes and their lands and take them off into captivity, he is still their God and they are still his people. And he's going to show that by what he's going to do next. In this next section Verse 17 through 23, he calls them to wake up. So they said, God, wake up and do something. And now he's saying to them, no, you wake up and do something. He tells them to stand up. And then he talks about how they've been drinking the cup of his wrath. Um, And because of that, right, there's no one to guide Jerusalem. A whole lot of people have died. Bad things have happened. Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. There's no comfort for them. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. But then, verse 21, something changes. Hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord your God, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. That's that's great news for them. God is saying, I've been pouring judgment out on you. That's why you're in this situation, but I'm going to stop. Instead, I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it on someone else. He says, uh, I will put it into the hand of your tormentor. So God is going to stop pouring out judgment on his people and instead pour it out on the Babylons for what they've done to his people. The people who said, bow down that we may pass over and have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. So he's going to uh, torment those who have tormented his people. Verse 50, or chapter 52, in this next section, he again tells them to wake up. And now he's moving on to the positive things he's going to do. The first part is kind of more the negative. He's removing the judgment and putting it on someone else. But now he's going to do something different for them. This is what's coming in place of the judgment they've been facing. He says, Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So he's telling them to kind of get ready. That they are going to be freed, and so they need to prepare themselves for action. Next he says, For the Lord, thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord your God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail and continually all the day my name is despised. So God's people have reacted against his judgment and they've said God doesn't care about us you know, he's, he's let us be sold to this other nation for nothing. And they're kind of deriding God for what he's done. But then he says, verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that as I who speak, here I am. So God is going to do something to change the way his people see him. He's going to take action that's going to cause them to respond to him in praise. Which is what we see next in the rest of the chapter. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So there's this messenger that's coming to tell them 
that God is bringing salvation. God reigns. He's going to conquer the Babylonians. He's going to free them from captivity. Peace is coming. Salvation is coming. Happiness is coming. This messenger is delivering this messenger message. And the watchmen see it. Verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. They're seeing that this messenger is bringing good news that God has saved his people. He's going to bring them back to the land. And the result is, he says, break forth into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. And that's kind of, here Jerusalem is being personified as the people. Uh, and so if you think about Hannibal, right, the parts of Hannibal that are just kind of like run down or, you know, maybe on the side of the road there's just a bunch of trash somewhere. He's saying that like, that's God's people. That, like, that, that's, that's where they're at. They're just like a pile of trash. But God's going to change their fortunes and they're going to break forth into singing. They're going to praise God because he's bringing them back into the land. He's bringing them back into his presence. Uh, For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So two things are happening here. Like One is that throughout the book of Isaiah, there's been a slight concern uh, of God that the other nations would see what's happening to his people and say that, you know, like your God isn't really powerful. Your God isn't really God because look what's happened to Israel. Look what's happened to Judah. They're, they're nothing. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been conquered by the Babylonians. Obviously, the Lord is not really God if that's what could happen to his people. And so there's kind of that side of it. And there's also the side of it that throughout Isaiah, we've been getting more and more and more and more information about how God's heart isn't just for Israel and isn't just for Judah, but it's also about the nations. He wants people from all over the world to find salvation in him, not just people from this one nation. And so when he says that uh, he's going to do this action before the eyes of all the nations and he's going to do the, all the ends of the earth are going to see the salvation of their God, that's what he's talking about. He's going to, first of all, correct their false assumption that he's not really powerful because what's happened to his people. He's going to redeem them in such a way that they're going to say that there's, there's no way this nation could have overpowered Babylon on their own. There's no way these people would have been freed from captivity if not for their God. And they're going to see that and they're going to say, Israel's God, Judah's God, he is a God that saves his people. In the last two verses, he's telling them to kind of get ready to go. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And so here he's telling them to get ready to go. God is coming, he's going to save his people, and they're going to go out from Babylon in a way that's different from how they went out of Egypt. Egypt they kind of like ran out of in the middle of the night. But now they're going to go out not in haste um, and not in fear. God's going to do something to cause that to happen, and we'll find out more about that later in the book. But the thing I want us to see this morning is that Paul refers back to this passage and picks up one of the verses and uses it in Romans 10. So I want to read Romans 10, verses 9 through 15 to you. You can go ahead and flip over, or they'll also be up on the slides. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. First of all, let's, let's get something straight here. Feet are gross. <laughs> right, they're, 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 they're not beautiful. Um, and like these feet in, in Isaiah that Paul's quoting would have been especially gross, right? They've, they've traveled over mountains to deliver this message. Like by the time they get there, they're, they're not clean. Uh, they're not s- smell goody. Uh, the opposite of stinky. <laughs> uh, they're not beautiful. And like I personally, I, I have a pretty big aversion to feet. And so I, I definitely think they're not beautiful, but I think everyone can agree that feet are just gross. What's, what's beautiful about these feet in Isaiah and what Paul is talking about is, is not the feet, but the message that they're carrying, right? For the people in Isaiah's day, that message would have absolutely been beautiful. They're in captivity. They've been devastated and destroyed. Their lives have been about being the brunt of God's judgment, That's what they've experienced again and again and again and again and again. A lot of these people have never seen Jerusalem. A lot of these people have never been to the land. All they've known is captivity. And so when God comes and he sends this messenger to say, it's time to go. You're going to be free. God's going to redeem them. You're still his people. He's still your God. He still cares for you. He's going to take action on your behalf to buy you out of your captivity. He's going to bring you back to the land. You're not going to die. You're going to have all of your needs met by him. He's going to be your God and you're going to be his people and it's going to be better than it used to be. They would have seen this message and responded exactly how Isaiah says they're going to respond. They would have praised God for what he's going to do for them. This was great, great, great good news. But our good news is better. Right? Our good news makes their feet look even grosser than I already think they look. Their good news pales in comparison to the beauty of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and right now, in our lives, in in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in the places we shop, in our city, there are people who do not know that good news. They don't know that God sent Jesus. They don't know that Jesus came to rescue and redeem and save us and save them. They don't know that they can't ever be good enough to not need his grace. And they don't know that they can't ever be bad enough to be beyond the reach of it. That's why he sent us. Because we have that beautiful message. We carry it, and he called us to share it. And Paul says, right, 
How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We've been sent. And so we need to be those who preach so that people can hear, so that people can believe, so that people can call on him, so that they can be saved. Right? Paul says that everybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he explains that in order to call on him, they need to hear from us. And so we need to recognize that we have this great good news message. And then we need to respond in obedience to Jesus and preach it. All the time, all the places, to all the people. We need to believe that our feet are beautiful and live like they are, and open our mouths and share this great good news message. Paul also tells us that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming the good news to ourselves, to those we celebrate it with, and we're reminding ourselves about the fact that there are people that have not heard that good news message or have not believed that good news message. And so today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to spend time thinking about the reality that it represents to us. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us and for our sin. That that is the decisive, redemptive action that God took to save us and buy us out of our captivity to sin and death and Satan. He sent his son to die for us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that that actually happened. God died for his people. He died for us. And so as you take the Lord's Supper today, ask the Spirit to remind you and, and, and renew your appreciation and your affection for what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and ask him to challenge you towards obedience in sharing that message with others. So I'm going to pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're, if you're new to BC, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is there are, there are two tables up here at the front. And so I'll pray and then we'll take some time to prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You don't have to be a member of this church to celebrate with us, but you do have to be someone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation. Because if you haven't done that, then you don't understand what you're celebrating yet. And if, if that's where you're at, if that's who you are, we would love to talk to you about that this morning. We would love to share with you this good news message that we have put our hope and our faith in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. And that you sent him to save your people. That you sent him to live the life that we couldn't live and to die a death in our place, paying the penalty that we should have paid for our sin. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We pray today that you would send your spirit to increase our awareness of and increase our affection for what you have accomplished on our behalf. That we would know even more of the grace that you've shown us through the cross. 
We pray that you would send your spirit to enable us to respond rightly as we celebrate your death in the Lord's Supper and as we continue in worship in the rest of the service. It's in your name we pray.